So we are in 2 Samuel together here still. We're in 2 Samuel 11, and I was more than a little tempted to just wait on this passage, uh, just because I thought after a nice baptism and praying for the seniors, this is sort of a downer. But this is God's Word, and it's faithful and true, whether it's fun and easy to read or not so fun and not so easy to read. So we are in 2 Samuel 11. All right, so Richard Nixon, Bill Clinton, Urban Meyer, Joe Paterno, Bill Cosby, Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias, Peter, Judas, Solomon, Saul, Samson, Moses, Judah, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Adam. Could be that some of these names you've never heard. Could be that some of these names you despise. It could be that some of them you're uncomfortable just hearing the name. Could be that some of them you think don't deserve to be on that list with the others. All of them were either were involved in either a great sin of their own or a great cover-up of a great sin that affected not only them, not only the victims, but whole communities. <coughs> communities, communities in which they were supposed to be leaders, and David belongs on this list. And maybe after today, you will see uh, that you and I belong on this list. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof in the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet 
And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then David sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So when it comes to the life of David, there are probably two events in his life that compete for top billing in most people's memories. 
if you know anything about David's life, if I asked you to tell me some of the stories about David, there would most likely be one of two that would be first. And it goes back and forth between which is first. It could be that you remember David slaying the giant Goliath with his sling and a stone. Or it could be this encounter here with Bathsheba and Uriah. This chapter might well have had that third verse that we sang for our assurance, the third verse uh, written about this chapter. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. So as we work through this passage, uh, our focus is uh, on sin. Uh, We're not necessarily going to walk through uh, step by step what happens here. But we are going to walk through how this chapter reveals to us the sinfulness of sin. And yes, we're going to try to get through a 15-point sermon today. Some of them I will group together. Uh, So, if your seats had seat belts, I would say strap in. But we're going to see how we do here. All right, so first of all, obviously, or at least obviously to me, sin is enticing. Uh, Not every sin is equally enticing to everyone, but all of us sin only because we want to. You sin because it's what you want to do at the moment. And you want it more than not sinning. In the moment, sin draws you in. Sin looks like it is going to accomplish something for you that righteousness just can't accomplish. James 1, 14 to 15, even as we read for our responsive reading. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Why do I sin? Because there was something I wanted more than honoring God. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Isn't it interesting, if you think about it, how how David's sin is so similar to Adam and Eve's sin? Especially the circumstances surrounding. David had everything. He was in a position of privilege in his relationship with God, a privilege that not even the rest of Israel could say. David was called by God, a man after his own heart. God had given him everything. David had multiple wives. David had all that he could want, and he saw something that he couldn't have and wanted that also. And Adam and Eve, they're in the perfect garden. They have a perfect relationship with God. Adam, the king of creation and he's given everything you may eat of every tree in the garden but one and they saw that one and they were enticed and they desired it 
and they took it. Sin is enticing. David and Adam and Eve are not unique. You and I sin because we're drawn in by our own desires for something that God has told us that's not for you. Second and third, sin is selfish and entitled. Sin is always selfish and often entitled. Sin has a way of convincing you and me that that we have a right to this, that we've earned this. Again, Adam and Eve faced it in the garden. God is holding out on you, the serpent said. You deserve better. He's keeping wisdom from you, knowledge, understanding. He's keeping you from being the full you that you could be. I've earned this either by my actions or maybe I deserve this because of someone else's actions. You know, maybe I have a right to this. I have a right to act this way because of how you acted first. I have a right to explode against you because you brought it out of me. You know how I get when you do these things. I have a right. I'm entitled to sin because you are a sinner. Maybe we feel entitled the same way David did. I deserve this. I've earned this. It's a reward. A reward for a hard day. A reward for a hard week. A reward for a hard life. Those rules don't apply to me. I'm the king for crying out loud. Maybe you feel entitled in other ways. I was tired. I'm stressed. You sinned first. Isn't it interesting as adults, if we could just break down some of our arguments for sin, how toddler-like they sound? He hit me first. She took my dolly. He took my... And and as adults, we just find better ways of saying it. Well, of course I sinned. You sinned first. Life is harder than I expected it to be. Or at least my life is harder than the clowns around me. So I am entitled to sin. Sin is enticing and entitling and selfish. Sin is dehumanizing and abusive, fourth and fifth. It's interesting that every English Bible that puts titles over passages calls this David and Bathsheba. So much so that that's what we expect it to be called, David and Bathsheba, David and Bathsheba. This is all about David and Bathsheba. But even in English, when you read it, it's definitely about David. He's mentioned by name 23 times in this little chapter. There's only 26 verses, and David's name shows up 23 times. Second to David's name is Uriah's name. I don't know if you heard it as we read how many times Uriah is mentioned by name, 20 times. And I think if the author would have titled this passage, he would have called it David and Uriah. The name Bathsheba shows up once. She is named one time. She's called woman or the woman several times. She's called 
the wife of Uriah several times. But she's mentioned by name once. And when she's mentioned by name, it is drilled into us that she's a person. She is someone's daughter and she's someone's wife. But the first thing we're reminded is she's someone's daughter. It is, it is almost God saying, she's my daughter. She's not your instrument for play. She's a person. She's delighted in by someone. To David, she's an object to use to satisfy his lusts. Sin treats others as less than human. Things that need to be manipulated in order to get what you want. Or else things to be attacked and abused if they're in the way of what you want. Sin is abusive. It abuses your authority. It abuses your relationships. It abuses people. Isn't this the point of James 4, 1 and 2? What, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And then we all sort of quietly say, her. Or, oh, that's easy, him. No, that's not what God says. Isn't it this, he says? Your passions are at war within you. You want something that you don't have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. Sin is dehumanizing and abusive. Sin is consequential, sixth. Uh, I don't mean that it's significant, although certainly sin is significant. I just mean that sin always produces consequences. Always, always, always. You cannot sin and there not be a consequence of your sin. The woman conceived and sent to David and told him, I am pregnant. Maybe your sin doesn't lead to physical consequences like this one does. Or like it ought to. Maybe you won't get audited by the IRS. Maybe that driver will never hear the words you said about him on I-95. Maybe she won't find out what you said about her under the guise of prayer requests. But sin is productive. Or maybe we should say sin is destructive. Harboring sin, embracing sin, will always produce a breakdown. It always produces a breakdown, a breakdown in your relationship with God, a breakdown in your relationship with others, a breakdown in your relationship with sin itself. The more we embrace sin, the more we, we leave sin unconfessed, the more other sin just gets in. It just gets easier and easier to embrace more and more sin. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. One consequence of sin is our seventh point. Sin is reproductive. 
unconfessed, unmortified sin begets sin. Always. Adultery leads to abuse of authority and murder and misrepresenting truth. I've pointed this out before in other passages or in other sermons about this passage. Uh, there, maybe there's one sin that we could say, one commandment that David didn't break in this chapter. But that's, I mean, that's generous. Like, I can't figure out how to say, like, he had a false image of God in this. But did David have other gods other than God? Of course he did. Martin Luther says you don't get to the other nine without first breaking the first commandment. The reason we sin is because there's someone other than God on the throne in our lives. We usually ourselves. So he certainly broke no other gods. No false use of God's name. David, for at least nine months, is going in and out of worship every Sabbath day. David is taking part in worship. Is he misusing God's name, pretending everything's fine, pretending he's the rightful spiritual leader of the people as the king anointed by God? Of course he's misusing God's name. He's breaking the Sabbath every Sunday as he go, or every Saturday, excuse me, as he goes in and out, as he takes part in the sacrifices and leaves his sin unconfessed. Honoring his parents, do you think they're proud of their boy, David? Look what he's become. It's just, it's, he's a chip off the old block. I just, I can't wait to tell our neighbors what David's like. Uh, no. Is he honoring Eliam? Eliam gets named. Bathsheba's father. Is he honoring Bathsheba's father in any way? Of course he isn't. You know, we could probably skip over murder and adultery. Those seem a little bit on the nose. I'm pretty sure everyone picked up on how he broke those two. He committed adultery. He killed someone. Stealing. He stole the man's wife. He bore false witness. He uses his words to deceive. He, he coveted sin reproduces sin, always. Eighth and ninth, sin is scheming and justifying. If having your sin pointed out, either directly or indirectly, doesn't lead to confession in you, it will always lead to scheming and justifying. She says, I'm pregnant. And so David jumps into action. Well, let's bring Uriah back. Is it in order to confess to Uriah his sin against him? No. So, how's the war going? Cool, 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 cool. How, 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 how's, how's Joab? Great, yeah, great, great, great. Um, here's a present. Here's a gift for you. Uh, why don't you... Okay, so, well, it's late. Uh, what, go, why don't you go home? Uh, why don't you... Uh, why don't you go wash your feet? You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, why don't you go, why don't you go wash your feet? Go, go wash your feet. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And then it doesn't work. Uriah is not cooperative. So David tries again. Okay, well, we'll join me for supper then. Have a drink. Have another. Have another. Have another. You look thirsty. Have a drink. Here, bring me another flask. Have a drink. Have a drink. Here, have a drink. Have a drink. Okay. Oh, you look tired. You should go home and rest. And it still doesn't work. Do you realize drunk Uriah is more righteous than sober David? Like, let that sink in. 
Add to that drunk Uriah foreign-born. Drunk Uriah, not even raised in the covenant, comes in as God's provision for outsiders. How do you join the covenant? You know, he's, he's part of the kingdom. He's part of, David's, he's part of David's mighty men. He's listed among David's 30 closest, most loyal warriors. And even drunk, he's more righteous and more loyal than David is sober at this point. I'm sure David feels like he, he, he forced my hand. I, I, this wasn't my choice. He brought this on himself. All he had to do was go home and wash his feet. Sin is always scheming and justifying. They sowed fig leaves and hid. It's the woman you gave me. It's the Han Solo, Lando Calrissian approach to sin. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. That's how we all approach our sin. We scheme, we justify. Tenth and eleventh sin is blind and deaf. Or maybe more accurately, sin blinds us and deafens us. David can't even see what he's doing. He can't hear the words even coming out of his own mouth. In verse 7, David literally asks about the welfare of Joab and the welfare of the people and the welfare of the war. It's just for us, it doesn't sound right to ask about the welfare of the war. Literally, the Hebrew word is shalom. Three times, David asks about the shalom of Joab and the shalom of the people and the shalom of the war. He asks about the peace that comes only from being in right relationship with God, the shalom that God promises to his covenant people. He uses that word three times. Never does it occur to him that he is so outside of the shalom of God right now. He can't even hear the hypocrisy in his own questions. When Uriah explains his reasons for not sleeping or even eating at home, David doesn't hear the unintentional rebuke. How can I do that? Most of the people, David, are still living in tents. Most of the people have not built palaces for themselves. And beyond that, Joab and all of his servants are not even in tents. They're out in an open field. And I'm going to go home, and I'm going to sleep with my wife. And he even exposes how he is loyal to David. As your soul lives, David, my king, my liege, I would never do something like that to dishonor you. David is totally deaf to this. David doesn't see even how wicked his own decision is to have this faithful, loyal man killed. He doesn't even see how ridiculous his suggestion is. Just, I don't know, just have everyone go forward and then have everyone, you know, at some point take two steps back, you know, and then it'll be fine. You know, all that does is implicate Joab. Joab has to orchestrate something like that. He's going to tell his whole army and the whole army is going to go along with sacrificing Uriah. Joab knows that that's impossible, but David is blinded by his sin. Twelfth and thirteenth, sin is callous and numbing. Sin just hardens our hearts against the effect of sin. 
against the effect that it has on our own spiritual health. Joab needed Joab didn't need to be concerned about how David would react. Like David doesn't even, Joab's hoping that David will notice that this is ridiculous and get angry. He's like, if he does, just tell him this at the end. He didn't, he had no need to worry about it. David is quite content. Now, obviously, the messenger's like, I'm not telling it to him that way. That's, he's going to yell at me. I don't need the king yelling. I'm going to, all right, I'm going to tell him, but I got to, I'm going to work this out first. You know, we were, we were valiant. They were a little more valiant. But David doesn't even care. There's no, what were you thinking? He says, don't let it bother you. Ah, oh, these things happen. Some days you're the dog. Some days you're the fire hydrant. You know, literally what he says is, don't let this matter be evil in the eyes of you. Like that's the literal kind of idiom that's used, the Hebrew phrase. Don't let this matter be evil in your eyes. But the word ordering is be evil in the eyes of you. Don't let it be evil to you. These things happen. Don't mistake David's actions as noble or chivalrous at the end here either. David waits the seemingly appropriate amount of time for Bathsheba, still not named, but twice called the Uriah's wife, right here. He waits, and for a second time, he sends for and takes her and makes her, makes her his wife. He is numb and calloused to his sin. Fourteenth sin is deadly, and there's just no way of missing that point, how deadly sin is. First of all, sin seeks the death of others. Sin earns death for the guilty. Genesis 2, on the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Again, in Hebrew, literally, it says, on the day that you eat of the tree, dying, you will die. And this isn't an Old Testament idea. We've already read Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Sin earns death because sin produces death. Because finally, sin is displeasing to God. Always. Almost word for word, the summary at the end is David's view or David's encouragement to Joab. David says, do not let this matter be evil in the eyes of you. Verse 21, 27 tells us, but the matter was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The last word of the chapter, literally in English and in Hebrew, is Yahweh, the Lord. The events are masterfully laid out for us to feel to feel the sin building and building and building as we wonder, where is the Lord? Where is the Lord? Never even mentioned in any of it. But the Lord sees. The Lord cares. Don't miss the weight and seriousness of your sin. The Lord sees. The Lord cares. 
If the actions of King David and the resulting death are not enough to convince you, then consider David's greater son, Jesus, who took on flesh and faced temptation in every way that you and I and David faced temptation and yet never gave in to temptation. Never desired anything more than pleasing his father. And yet he died a sinner's, a murderer's, a traitor's death so that you and I could be forgiven and justified and redeemed so that David could be offered forgiveness. It's hard to preach chapter 11 because you're stuck without any answer. And so you have to borrow a little bit from chapter 12 because God sees and God knows and in his seeing and knowing, is pursuing you. And so the only question is, will you repent? Or will you die in your sin? Scripture says, the Lord takes no delight in the death of anyone. Turn and live. Let's pray. God, your word is always faithful and true, and sometimes it is weighty and hard in a very good and important and proper way. We need your word and your spirit to convict us of our sin, to see the ugliness, the filthiness, the deadliness so that we might turn to you alone for hope and salvation. In your Son's name, amen.